Welcome to the SportsPro podcast with SportsPro editor Owen Connolly, getting inside the sports industry, then recording it on audio. Hi everyone and welcome to another SportsPro podcast. Uh, joining me again is SportsPro senior writer Adam Nelson. Hi Adam. Hi Owen. And with us for the first time is Kevin Roberts of the Roberts Network. How are you doing, Kevin? Yeah, I'm good, Owen. Thanks. Good to be here. Good. Glad to have you. Um, it's it's a busy busy few weeks in the summer of sport, and uh, we've just enjoyed the uh, the two weeks of Wimbledon. We've got the British Grand Prix coming up this weekend as well, um, as we're speaking. Uh, the Tour de France is underway. But first of all, I wanted to talk about the biggest event of the summer before the biggest event of the summer, which will be in Rio uh, in a few weeks' time. Euro 2016, we've had four weeks of football of varying quality, um, but a tournament that I think has, has on the whole been, been quite well received. Uh, and I just wanted to kind of have a bit of a wrap-up conversation about that. Um, Kevin, any thoughts, broad thoughts, first of all, on, on the tournament and on how it's gone? Yeah, well, to quote Eddie Izzard, have become Welsh. And uh, but actually, I, I, I genuinely both my uh, both my parents are Welsh, so I kind of qualify while everybody else is desperately looking around in the UK for a way of making making a link. And it's not just you know the uh, progress that the Welsh team have made through to the semi-finals that I think has given this tournament something different. It has been one of the less predictable international football tournaments. And, you know, you have to look to Iceland for that as well, for the way that they uh, they performed, the way that they m- performed tactically to stop technically better teams beating them and then turning them over at the, at the last minute. I think that, well, I hope that these Euros will be remembered as a tournament that sort of changed major international tournament uh, football. And if you look across the other side of the Atlantic to Chile, uh, winning as uh, w- winning as well, beating Argentina in their uh, in in their final, mm. then you know you get a feeling that perhaps international football is becoming even more uh, more competitive. We are, as we speak, though, just at the downtime, where if you're a football junkie like me, getting used to three games a day, nearly every day of the week, when you get to the business end, they take it all away from you, and the shakes start, and ah, oh, it's just dreadful. Adam. Uh, yeah, I think for all the criticisms of UEFA kind of expanding this tournament to 24 teams and the kind of mockery of Portugal playing the teams that they did to get to the final, it's hard to really criticise it when you have success stories like Wales, like Iceland, um, even even you know Hungary who didn't get past the second round, but they battled their way out of that group, um, and that's that's a great thing to watch, and it's and it has been amazing to watch these smaller nations be really successful or be even moderately successful. Um, despite the criticisms of should they be there, should we have a tighter, uh, shorter tournament with fewer, with more quality in it? You know that's a debate that can be had, um, and how maybe you could look at ways to improve qualifying so that maybe you get more surprises and more teams like Wales able to qualify more regularly. But I think on balance, it's been worth it to have the the Iceland and the Wales stories. I mean, what what's been fascinating for me from a from a federation's point of view, which is, I guess is, is where we're discussing it at the moment, is the response of Iceland and Wales, who've been perhaps the two smaller success stories of the tournament, to that opportunity that there was going to be an, a Euro that they could qualify for. They've really taken that opportunity with both hands, and what was interesting was both of them qualified emphatically to get to the finals in the first place. And, you know, Wales since have topped their group. They topped a group with country who we won't name in it um, and have you know really really optimised the way that they produce footballers the way that they play football um, at elite level and the way that they engage with, with their own supporters they've both had fantastic support throughout the tournament um, and that will be interesting because World Cup qualifying is, is going to be a lot more competitive I think than, than these Euros have been it's interesting, particularly in the uh, in, in the case of Wales, and let's remember that every qualifying competition is the is, is literally the the luck of the draw. Um, I'm not sure whether England were the team that we weren't going to, uh, <laughs> to to mention, but you know if you're an England fan, the last 
a handful of qualifying competitions have been as dull as Ditchwater because of the, uh, the lack of the draw. The fact that they went through their entire qualifying campaign you know, unbeaten may well have had something to do ultimately with, their, uh, uh, you know, with the lack of success mm. at the tournament itself. But going back to, to Wales, I think the great thing about this is when they do come to play in World Cup qualifying and they have the Republic of Ireland in their group as well, they, what they have now is a degree of momentum. That link with the fans means that, assuming that they stick with Cardiff City Stadium, which they moved to because they were rattling around at the Millennium Stadium for years when things weren't quite so good for them, you're going to get that full-blooded crowd with them from day one. They're not going to have to build this wave, if they can keep it going, may well be enough to take them through. They've They've got traction, and that's the thing. In a country where they're competing with rugby union for mind share, for media share, this has been something of a uh, been something of a breakthrough. Mm. Let's let's pivot a little bit and just talk about the the feeling of that whole tournament itself and and the structure of it with those twenty four teams. I mean, we had what um, Tyson Henley, who was on the uh, on the podcast just before things kicked off described as uh, as the party phase that first first round of group matches when everybody is going in with with expectations high and you know a full complement of fans and and so on which is something that the euro hasn't really had before to quite the same extent that the world cup has but very much did this time but there seemed to be a couple of points in the tournament where things just flagged a little bit because of that uh, because of that 24 team structure i mean particularly that last round of of group matches is that something as a broadcast product, as a media kind of, um, you know, a, a media generation product that, that UEFA will look at again? I, they may do, but, um, you know, I think you could level the same at the, the World Cup itself. If, and if you look at that as the, the benchmark, you do end up with a situation where, particularly in the last uh, round of group games, you get the occasional... Uh, the occasional dead rubbers, and there certainly weren't many of those in this uh, in this tournament because of the, the the numbers and the way that the best qualified third teams went through from a couple of the uh, a couple of groups. So, you know, I'm I'm, I'm with him. That first bit is the party uh, is the party phase before you get to the to the business end. But I'm not sure structurally that there's uh, that there's much you can do about it. That's almost. That level of interest is almost dictated by what happens on the pitch, mm. and that's something that rights owners, rights holders can do nothing about. I'd say it's, it's less to do with dead rubbers and more the fact that you had Albania, who finished third in their group on the Thursday, on sorry, on the Sunday, and had to wait for the Thursday to find out if they'd actually qualified, um, which is just annoying. More than anything else, it's just it's a shame for their fans who watched their team who've never played in the tournament before be actually really brilliant on that final game, uh, get, the, get the first ever victory, think there's a chance they could be going through and then have to wait four days to find out if they actually have. Mm. And I, I'm sure there must be a better way for UEFA to work out the tournament than this four best third-place teams going through, which just feels like a bit of a fudge. And you're never quite sure who's who's in pole position. Uh, you, you saw it in the um, Portugal group as well, where they played that amazing 70 minutes against Hungary and then they both realised they were fine at 3-3 and just played out 20 minutes where neither of them could be bothered to win the game because mm. they didn't have to which is something you get in tournament groups group stages like that anyway but it felt more pronounced here because of the third place thing Another aspect of, of this tournament that, that's a watershed not permanently but for the next few years we had um, a relatively compact tournament by, by major standards in France but one that was still in a country that's varied enough and interesting enough that the people who are touring around following their teams can, can get quite a lot out of it. We now move on to a phase of Russia, Pan-European and Qatar for, um, for major tournaments as far as Europeans are concerned. How are the challenges of, of those three very different environments um, and formats? And we won't get on to some of the other aspects of, that have led to, uh, led to those tournaments being where they are, but just... What are the challenges going to be for people promoting things around those those events, and and the logistical challenges going to be? Let's look at Qatar first. That's somewhere that I've worked off and on for the last fifteen years, working on the 
you know, with their Olympic committee on their their magazine and various other various projects. So I've, I've visited quite often, and, and a lot can change before they host the World Cup in 2022. But I think the point, I mean, that you made about France being a destination, you can go, there's plenty to do. If you're in one city, you can visit, you can occupy yourself. There is... It's a, Doha, and when we talk about Qatar, the reality is you're mm. talking about one city. As the host is going to find it extremely difficult to occupy huge numbers of fans and keep them happy during the for the duration. And even if we just focus on that first two weeks when all the teams are on board, I can only imagine that the guys who are planning, um, what are they called, the Supreme Committee, uh, who are planning the execution of the uh, World Cup, and I did say the World Cup itself in, uh, yeah. in Qatar, will have looked at some of those scenes of um, drunken violence in Marseille at the very beginning of the Euros, put their hands on their heads and thought, do we really mean to do all this? What have we let ourselves in for? Because I can't help thinking that bringing fans who are going to be welcomed into an environment which may be claustrophobic because there's not a whole lot to do and nowhere else to go apart from getting on a plane and going to Dubai or whatever, which adds to the huge cost. And when you think fans are paying loads and loads of money anywhere, any, any, anyway, I just think that, they, that, that there is an issue there for such a tiny country about actually accommodating what to do with those fans, mm. particularly given the... You know the slightly, not slightly, the incendiary nature of some of the relationships among fan groups of the of the European sides that they may not quite have thought all the way uh, through yet. Mm. Russia is quite the opposite, of course. Um, was a Russian guy listening to on the radio the other day that said who decided that the the violence wouldn't be a problem because they know who the ringleaders are and they'd get a visit. Um, slightly uh, ahead of the the tournament, and and literally read the read the riot act, so they could clamp down uh, on that. But of course, Russia's a different problem as well. How do you keep a cohesive spirit going when you've got venues, even though they're more compact than Russia itself is, which are actually quite a long way uh, mm. from each other? So th- there are some interesting challenges uh, coming up. Mm. And Adam, do you have any thoughts on on the next Euro, which is going to culminate here? Probably without England, we would say it at this juncture, but we never know. Um, how do you think that, that that's going to go down? What do you think the challenges will be for that? I, I, I'm not really made up my mind on it, really. I think, I think in some ways it's a, a, a nice idea. I can see why they've done it as this kind of uh, celebration of, of, what is it, the 60th anniversary or something of the mm. original uh, European Championship. And it means that places like Budapest, which otherwise Hungary wouldn't hold a Euros, it means that Budapest gets to hold a few games. It means, you know, for better or worse, that Baku gets to, to hold some European football. Um, but it, it also means that you lose... that. It means that that incredible atmosphere that we've seen in various cities across France won't, won't be as pronounced because you won't get the, the mingling of uh, fans from all, all different nations coming together in these fan zones and, and areas like that to just celebrate being there. Um, you will get, you know, t- two sets of fans and they, they might mingle, they might not. It's going to be, it's going to be tricky logistically as well. If uh, fans are traveling from one city to another, it means you're not going to get the same fans going. So they're not going to have that same uh, kind of commit. What's the word I'm looking for? Commitment to the, uh, to that, to that atmosphere. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me that you're going to get something that's a bit more akin to kind of 13 Champions League finals, you know, where you have one city and it's a big occasion for a few days and then it moves on somewhere else. And Yeah, I wouldn't, though, underestimate the um, ingenuity of the travel and hospitality sector around sport to be able to do things to pull this all, all together. I'd be amazed if when we get to, to those finals, it's not possible to buy a ticket and travel and accommodation that will take you from place to place to place. And because it's not been done before, I think it's probably a bit early to suggest that it won't... You know, this, gosh, this sounds like a, an advertising slogan, and I can't think whose. Yes, I can. To sort of light up the whole of uh, of Europe as the games move... Uh, as, as, as the games move around. You know, I... 
I think the fan thing is likely to be sorted. It's probably a different. It's probably a question of uh, perception as much as anything else. Quite happy to have a World Cup in the United States with massive distances between uh, between venues, when you can only ever, no matter whether you have it in one country or not, have the final in in one place. So, final of the World Cup in 1994 was in uh, Los Angeles at the at the Rose Bowl. Yet Ireland beat Italy. In, at Yankee yeah. Stadium in, in, in New York and so as a, as a matter of scale people still managed to follow the tournament it was still something that mattered I think sitting here in London from a British perspective it's just more difficult to uh, probably at this stage to look at Europe in quite the same way as we might have done a week ago Yeah, I'd say, I'd say the other thing too I'd, uh, I mentioned two countries that are going to be hosting games in Hungary and Azerbaijan there's every chance that neither of those countries will qualify for the next Euros, um, Hungary probably better chance than Azerbaijan of doing so. Mm. Um, but it also means that you lose that that sense of of you know even even if it is spread out, you lose that sense of a, a one host mm. inviting the continent to their their country and trying to put on the best show that they can. Um, so there's less investment from it in it from the the citizens of those of those places, which I think is a shame as well. Yeah, and of Paris and, and, and the French public have really got behind this Euros in a, in a way that's been like really refreshing I think I think that, is, that's, that may well be true in Hungary but you know it's a fact of sporting life at the moment that you know, tournament, this is not just football competitions from lots and lots of other sports are going to places like Azerbaijan and I'm sure stadiums will be full I'm sure that the public will engage and embrace with them whether or not they have a home team to, uh, to to cheer for, because you know that's what they've become. You know they they've become used to. I mean, you know, hosting the the first uh, European Championships wouldn't have been a uh, you know w- wouldn't wouldn't have been a natural for anywhere else. But there's a there's a desire from the centre in those places. Now, I'm not suggesting that this is the way that sports should go in a, in a million years, but the point is, from a purely practical point of view, I think they can make it, I think they can make it happen. All right, all that to look ahead to, but uh, we'll pick up with some more after the break. Sports Pro, the sports industry leader in print, digital, events and, and podcasts. Welcome back to the Sports Pro Podcast. It is summer here in London, so the calendar tells us. Um, and we are in the midst of a summer of sport, and this is probably the densest week of it right now. We're approaching the end of, uh, of the Wimbledon Championships. We've got the Tour de France underway just across the channel. And we are preparing for the British Grand Prix at Silverstone on Sunday. Um, and we're in the midst of a couple of test series as well for a little bit more local interest. Um, but first of all, Wimbledon, which has been very heavily affected by the rain, but which continues really to be kind of a, a branding masterpiece, Kevin. Um, yes, yeah, one of those uh, sports sports events, few sports events, which is instantly recognisable at a glance at a, a television set, which has changed... Yeah, you know, to all intents and purposes, very little over. What's it now? One hundred and forty-nine years this year. I'm sure. It, I'm sure it's not one hundred and fifty. Otherwise, we'd uh, otherwise we'd we'd known about it. I've only been around for about one hundred and twenty <laughs> of them. So, well, um, so so yes, it's it's a branding masterpiece. It's to do with being able to make the brand of your event stronger than the brand of any of your sponsors and in in that Wimbledon sits alongside just a couple of other events maybe the Masters uh, and the Olympic Games as examples of killer sports events which keep brands visually at a distance but seem to offer them huge amounts of canvas if you like to work their uh, their, their programs on and yeah, maybe there's uh, there's some truth in the old idea that when it comes to sponsorship like this and when it comes to relationships between brands and sport that less really can be uh, more but plenty of arguments to go the other way as uh, as well but uh, what Wimbledon and what the absence of branding around the courts and the immediate environments has done is I think is, is, is made 
the brands who pay lots of money to be part of it absolutely more, more creative more innovative in a lot of ways and the way that uh, many of them have switched their attention have, have started to use digital media effectively to 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 paint their picture around the event rather than simply uh, relying on broadcasters which would be a, f a futile wait to do the job for them has almost helped push the whole of the sponsorship sector forward a little yeah and I mean the commitment that for example um, in the UK at the moment we're seeing a very high profile and I'm sure quite expensive campaign from a reassuringly expensive campaign from Stella Artois um, Adam, you were you were at Wimbledon last week on a on a rare first week day of sunshine yeah. and tennis. Yeah, it, it was it was good. Now I just thought I'd add to what Kevin was saying there. There was an article written by uh, Simon Chadwick uh, last week about the Euros and about the value of uh, official sponsorship of Euro 2016 for the is it eight or so brands who are officially partners of that event um, and how a lot of brands. Uh, one good example being the Iceland supermarket have uh, kind of done this ambush marketing campaign around the Euros, taking away a lot of the, the, the glitz of being an official partner. And I think the interesting thing about Wimbledon is that by slightly distancing, distancing itself from the brands, it actually gives them, it actually gives other brands less of an opportunity to do that ambush marketing because they, they can't, the brands who are official partners of Wimbledon are, are already slightly peripheral to the main event. And so if you then come in and try and be peripheral to that, it just it doesn't quite add up in the same way as, as brands have found that it does for, for the Euros and for other events that place their brands front and centre. Because yeah. um, another thing that I noticed today was uh, the comedian uh, David Baddiel tweeting, saying that um, a lot of people are going to leave this Euros not knowing what it is that Hisense sell. And Hisense have had banners on every Euro game on, on the, uh, the advertising hoarding. And... And, and, and he's right. They they don't give you any information about what that is. It's just a word, um, and that's you know that's again something where uh, brands just kind of losing traction and losing sight of what it means to actually sponsor an event. Just getting the brand out there in this case possibly isn't quite enough. Whereas with Wimbledon, everything that you get from being a part of Wimbledon probably makes it more than enough to to associate yourself with that. I mean, one of the things that's really interesting about Wimbledon is how unabashedly Wimbledon they are about everything but um, how much of an effect has it had though that even with all that it's still quite a forward thinking tournament they, they have a very good digital product um, and of course they have a roof on centre court now and, and they are due another one on, on number one court to kind of keep the television aspect of Wimbledon going well, I think the roof was a stroke of genius because it's, you know, it's protected the, the world's tennis fans from Cliff Richard getting up and singing uh, any time in, uh, in the immediate future. So that was worth every penny for that, uh, that reason alone. I, do, I, I was there last on the first week as well, but on a, on a wet day. And I tell you what, going into uh, centre court with the roof on, but what looked like in the middle of the afternoon, without the full effect of the the floodlighting, it was a kind of eerie, uh, eerie experience. I don't know whether it was the roof open. open the roof you, was, the roof you, was you, wide you, open. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean that was a but that that was a a, a new one uh, for me. But yeah, you've got to be part of uh, part of Wimbledon, and what what the what it allows is. I think is what you were seeing is that you see the sort of, you see the brands in in action, but critical to the way that they've moved forward is the deal with uh, you know with with the people who supply their uh, their website and uh, are the, IBM, uh, IBM, IBM yeah. sorry, and you know I, IBM are able to use that brilliantly to their uh, to, to their own effect, and they I think the the fact that they've been actually promoting. Wimbledon as a as a digital product, where they're making it a a destination, has, has in a way encouraged other people to get into uh, the production of digital content on their own, but therefore link platforms and linking through uh, through social media. It's you know you've got a tournament which is arguably 149 years old, but in many respects can teach a lesson to a lot of apparently more modern and uh, far-sighted sports. Mm. And, of course, the other aspect of that digital coverage is that Wimbledon is something that lends itself very well to, particularly in the first week, to 
adaptive and reactive storytelling. I mean, you never know. There's 20 courts in play or 20 off courts in play. You never know where the first week story is going to come from. Um, let's let's look across the channel then back to France. Uh, the the Tour de France is um, is uh, in motion at the moment. That is another another event that has to kind of do things its own way. It's a, a three week event. We're told that we need to make things shorter and shorter, and here we are watching guys slog their way on bikes uh, across mountains and. Uh, and planes for hours on end. I mean, uh, cycling has had its own very well-publicised problems, but what does what does the tour do right, and what does the tour not quite get right? I think as a as a, as a television product, you know, the, the tour, and this has been said a million times before, is worth its weight to France because it is simply the most brilliant travelogue. Ever produced for a single uh, for, for for a single nation every year, it's uh, it's slightly different, and I don't think you can actually watch. I don't think it's physically possible to watch more than two hours of Tour de France coverage, uh, particularly in the mounted stages, and not actually want to go and be a tourist. <laughs> it's just that uh, compelling. And if you then graft this fantastic or these fantastic sports stories on top of all that you've got a little bit like Wimbledon you know Wimbledon is a fixed brand because you it's always what you see is always what you get but you can tell that things are the the Tour de France there's something which is remarkably and intangibly but remarkably Gallic uh, about the uh, about the whole thing and it it takes France and French brands to the to the world and I think that that's one of the the puzzles is why really the brands that support Tour de France tend to still be French brands. It is undeniably, I mean there are exceptions of course, but the, in, in, in bulk it is undeniably now a global product. But that's not really reflected in, as I understand it, in the, in the sponsor roster. Mm-hmm. So I think that uh, uh, Amori the sports organisation who, who run it have both a challenge and potentially a fantastic opportunity now. Adam, do you have any, any reflections on the tour yourself? Um, I just I think that coming to this from talking about Wimbledon, it's interesting that both those events are ones who have managed to which have managed to retain their identity uh, regardless of individuals within the sport. So uh, the ATP over the past few years has had a boom in interest in its in its own events. Um, because of the big four in tennis and because of the rival between Djokovic and Murray um, and other cycling events we've seen in this country, particularly an uptake in the viewership of because of Cavendish, because of Froome. But Wimbledon and the Tour, you know, would they would get the same broadcast figures regardless of whether those guys were there or not because they are, you're watching Wimbledon, you're watching the Tour, you're not watching an athlete. Well, you mean you are, but you're not, you're not turning to it to specifically watch that athlete. You want to be part of the event that they have. That taking part in. Yeah, and you, you notice as well, I guess, that other events that are on a, a, a similar but not quite the same level tend to back off the other Grand Slams, respect that Wimbledon perhaps occupies a space on its own. Similarly, the other Grand Tours probably accept that they aren't in a straight shootout with, with the Tour de France. Yes, I, I guess, because every... I think some of the other Grand Tours know that they owe some of their popularity outside of their of their immediate uh, country to the fact that there's a global audience that has almost entirely been generated by the uh, by the by the Tour de France mm. and that's and, you know and that's that, that's something which i think probably m- may have you know contributed there's a sort of sense of uh, should we say a, a potential sense of self importance there which may have uh, contributed to some of the issues around the Tour de France and its place in the general scheme of uh, world cycling mm. of, uh, of late and frankly it went on so long I've lost track of to how that actually resolved itself <laughs> if it has I'm not sure it has actually I think there's still uh, still some some things to be on out there but but they will be as they so often are in everybody's interests or in, at least in the interests of the wealthiest and the most powerful in the sport um, speaking of which, <laughs> moving neatly on to Formula One and the British Grand Prix at Silverstone on Sunday. Um, Formula One has 
perhaps not moved quite as adroitly into the uh, into the modern world as people might have expected. It's a sport that's kind of very much about cutting edge and you know speed and all the rest of it. But it seems to have suffered a bit of uh, a bit of a dislocation um, from that image, and, and maybe is is not as as comfortable as it was kind of twenty years ago. It's interesting, isn't it, that you know this season Formula One started with probably one of the biggest cock-ups in the history of proper top-class international sport when it introduced a qualifying system which simply didn't work mm. and they then had to uh, back, back, back up on it. You know, I, that tends to suggest, in terms of governance, that tends to suggest a lack of cooperation, coordination, testing... And maybe it's too far, you know, it, it, it's too big a leap to suggest that the fact that power in Formula One really ultimately lies in very few hands and that these things can be introduced uh, relatively straightforwardly, um, that, that, is, that, that, that that's to blame. So I think this season got off and Formula One got off to a particularly rocky start and that the whole sport was held up to a degree of ridicule when its top drivers and its teams were saying, what the hell are we doing? This doesn't, uh, this doesn't work. Yet the season had started. I think that's a, it's, a, it's a good event to come on to uh, after what I was just saying about Wimbledon and the Tour, actually, because I remember when, when I was a kid, uh, Silverstone was a huge event in the calendar. It was, it's the British Grand Prix this weekend. It, it's Silverstone. And it's completely, well, not completely, but it's, it's, that's really waned now. It doesn't have that same uh, glitz in the calendar anymore. And I think there's two things. I think one is the, the broadcast of Formula One which uh, talking in the, but in those days was it was all free to air, so mm. people were following every race week yeah. in week out. I mean, free to air around the world in kind of right. almost every major market we're talking, and and one by one, at least in Western Europe, they've they've fallen away. Yeah, and I, I think the other thing is just what what Kevin was saying there: the the, the, the lack of governance, which means that. Or well, not the lack of governance, but the just, the just the poor regulation around the governance, which has just meant that people have kind of tuned out because I mean you talk about the the drivers not knowing what the rules are the, the people watching don't know what the rules are and they don't know what they're looking out for and something will happen uh, and a you know a safety car will come on and no one knows why and it's just the whole thing is it's, it's quite sad really when you think back to the status that, that the event used to have uh, which now you know in the, the global F1 calendar only Monaco really retains as that singular unique event that is looked forward to all around the world and people know that it's 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 the Monaco Grand Prix this weekend. Mm. From a commercial perspective, you know the point that you make about the switch away from free to air is, is also got is also having repercussions. The uh, the Financial Times, I think it was, reported in well earlier earlier this year at the beginning of the season that you know the teams who rely on sponsorship to a great extent had lost something like £200 million over, of sponsorship revenue over the last three years. And there has to be a connection between, in Formula One, because it's not the Olympics and they're not particularly creative around it, they do want exposure, they don't want eyeballs. So if you all of a sudden go to take your sport, as to a certain extent UEFA and the Champions League have done in the in the UK you're changing your relationship with your responses quite significantly and need to find other ways of demonstrating that uh, that you're still d- delivering them value so you have a sport which is seen by fewer people as you said you know the fact that the race is actually on the same day as the Wimbledon men's final probably doesn't help hugely in terms of scheduling either that really should be something that they can uh, that they could look at but it's been it's no longer what it was, I would say, even 10 or, or, or 15 years ago. And what you can't do is risk, in any sport, you can't risk losing a generation. If you lose a generation, it's very difficult to, uh, to get them back. And as somebody who's not a petrol head and sits, you know, sits back and just observes uh, Formula One from what passes from a pe- professional perspective, um, you know, I, I'm not sure that... You know, this is just part of a, a, a long tail for Formula One. Something needs to be done to to kick it back into to life. And there is, you know, quite sexy, modern, up to date competition, although competition denies its competition, out there. 
Are you referring to, to Formula E? I, I am indeed. I mean, I believe it's a slow burner. It has its own, its own problems. But in the history of, of sport, and particularly mechanical sport, motorsport, whether you're mo- racing on water, in the air, or on the track, you know, the competition has always followed technical developments and where mm. people are willing to invest money. Now, given environmental concerns, given issues over, over, over fossil fuel, the cost of uh, petrol and, and everything else, you know, the, the world of all the auto trade is inevitably moving towards battery power, to electric power. So I don't think you need to be a genius to think that the major motor manufacturers who were the people who supported and Formula One was originally built around, the, 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 in terms of the teams at least, will, as it gets better, as it presents itself as being more relevant uh, and more uh, more of a media attraction, will start to invest in in that that sport. Mm. It's you know, I just think it's part of the, the, the part of the the cycle. Perhaps the fundamental thing for Formula One is how much, in terms of the financial structure, comes from these hosting fees that it attracts from each uh, each circuit. You know, you now have 21 events on the calendar. Um, as far as the the manufacturers are concerned, they don't get very long to work with uh, with new products, to work with new rules, and to really give themselves a showcase for the best of what their company can achieve. Um, and of course, the other thing is that because uh, so much is dependent on on the size of these fees that that Formula One's able to command from from some markets. You don't have a French Grand Prix anymore. You don't have a German Grand Prix every year. You don't perhaps have have Grand Prix in the future, um, or you won't perhaps have them in the future in, in places that have really defined the brand of the sport. But you know the cavalry is arriving in in its green livery and its Heineken, who are spending um, perhaps around a couple of hundred million dollars on on sponsorship of formula one over the next few years can a sponsor do enough to revive the image of of a sport like that can it do enough to revive the way that that messaging is um uh is is put out there or or does it have to be something that's that's much more fundamental to how the sports run um no matter how much money they put in um isn't going to make up or the money that appears to be being lost by the move to that. And, you know, there are those cynics out there who would actually question the involvement of a beer brand in a motorsport mm. under under any circumstances. That's not a judgmental thing. It's, mm. it's a fact. There are those who would question it. Is that an appropriate uh, sponsorship? There was a great story earlier this week, uh, and it's not the first of its kind, where... Uh, some little league basketball or baseball club uh, team in uh, in New Jersey. Everybody was up in arms because they were sponsored by the local branch of Hooters, which uh, I won't even go into what Hooters is uh, is all about. It was considered to be an inappropriate sponsorship, and uh, I'm I'm just not sure. I'm sure that if you talk to somebody from Heineken and from F1, they would have worked out a perfectly plausible in their eyes at least rationale from that but but is it right I'm just surprised that that Heineken thought that was a great deal to do but ultimately you know if if a sport isn't getting the audience if the if if the sport's not getting the audience it just comes down to that if people are losing interest then there is no traction for the sponsors there's no reason for host cities to pay fees and you know, it's interesting, again, that we're talking about this, as you, as you said, just after talking about Wimbledon. Look at the difference between those things. You've got a sport, Wimbledon, like the Tour de France, which has kind of been the same, which is visually easily identifiable, which celebrates its traditions and has extracted financially the maximum by playing on those traditions, monetizing those traditions and what makes them great. Formula One seems to be in the process of brushing its traditions off the table in favour of going to the highest bidder. I mean, in 20 years' time, who's going to look back at the Indian Grand Prix, wherever that was held, or revel in the motor magic of Sochi? I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. Question for another day, but um, we're going we're gonna to end it there for part two. Um, join us again when we're going to be talking about political convulsions in this country and there. <laughs> 
their potential effect on the sports industry. We'll speak to you in a sec. Listeners, not finding this podcast too boring? Then why not check out the Sports Pro website, where fresh sports industry news, views, features and interviews are uploaded every single day. Visit sportspromedia.com, download the Sports Pro app, subscribe to the Sports Pro podcast on iTunes, maybe even treat yourself to a monthly Sports Pro magazine subscription. Delve deeper into the sports industry with Sports Pro. Welcome to the final part of today's Sports Pro podcast. So, Brexit pursued by a bear market. <laughs> we voted in this country a couple of weeks ago now to leave the European Union. Quite how we we're going to, uh, quite, well, we, I'm using the, the broadest collective we that I can. I don't know the voting uh, habits of anyone at this table, but I'd be very surprised. Um, anyway. It's going to take no, a- no, no <laughs> political stance on the Sports Pro podcast. This whole process is going to take it longer than be. It's going to be the longest departure since they tried to get me out of the last party I was invited <laughs> to um, at two o'clock in the morning. But it's it, uh, it, it, it's shaken uh, the UK, I think, in ways that people didn't expect to be to be shaken. And just to put some co- you know some context on the thing, there was. You know, the, very, very narrow vote. There were 12 million people who were eligible to vote who uh, didn't. And I know this discussion is not about how we got there. It's about what uh, happens there. But I think it's that combination of factors has led to a feeling of uncertainty and insecurity that uh, even people of my age probably have never experienced in their, uh, their lives before. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we are in the maelstrom at the moment of of all the consequences of, of that particular vote, and I think it has caught a lot of people off guard. Um, for the sports industry, what are the challenges that need to be faced? What are the things that that need to be protected? And, uh, you know, how, how do they collectively... Um, address this situation. Well, interestingly, it looks like the Premier League teams have assumed that they need to spend, 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 and they were, they were going to do that anyway. But I think the the rumours of bids that are coming in for certain players. Um, uh, we were talking yesterday about fifty one million for twenty nine year old Bonucci. It seems like uh, so. I, I read a stat the other day that the uh, the Premier League broadcast deal that was signed was it last year, two years ago? This this huge broadcast deal, which has now meant that clubs have this extra supply of cash. Uh, was worth $13 million when it was signed. It's now worth $9 million um, because of the... Billion. Billion dollars, mm. rather, yeah, because of the uh, exchange rate uh, collapsing mm. the way that it has. Um, so, I, I mean, I don't know if it's the case that, that clubs are worried that's going to go even further and they're, they're going to have even less of a, of a cash flow and they're thinking, do, it, do the spending now because next summer we're not going to be able to but potentially that has uh, influenced some people's thinking. Mm. It's certainly influenced the thinking of people writing on the homesdale.net, which is one of the Crystal Palace Football Club uh, uh, forums. And, you know, the, the, the reality is that if you're having to do deals in euros or do deals in, in dollars, if you're not earning in dollars, there is, as we speak, a, a, a huge gap. So the spending has been uh, has been denuded uh, quite uh, quite significantly. The other thing that, um, that that I think is important from this is that I, I, I spoke to um, Scott Bowers of the Jockey Club uh, last weekend about uh, this, and he wasn't he wasn't particularly. Uh, concerned about what it would do for uh, do, do for the for the racing industry, so I think we we tend to come back to you know to, to, to football largely because one of the key issues around the or the, the key reasons for the referendum and the key issues in the debate was one of the freedom of movement mm. of labour and the fact that in particular the Premier League, but even further down the uh, English and British football uh, pyramid now. There are a remarkable number of players from EU member countries who would, uh, depending on what deals are, uh, are, are organised, have to qualify to play in the same way as a player from Africa 
Australia or any other part of the world. And that could, I guess, have some quite serious, uh, serious implications to the brand of particularly the Premier League as an international league which happens to be hosted in the UK. The, the England has lucked in. English football has lucked in. When they, the, when they launched the Premier League, they, it was done with the FA, thinking this was a great idea because it would bring in more money to be able to pay British English players more and keep them at home. Well, good luck with that as we go <laughs> forward. It kind of, it kind of uh, never worked. But what has happened, almost by default, is that you've got some of the best players from all over the world, week after week, turning out, but under the brands of some of the best-known clubs in the world that are instantly recognised. And that, that whole thing is a really potent mix which is commercially hugely valuable. If we lose because they become more expensive or because they simply don't qualify under other criteria, if we lose foreign players, they're not all, but some of that sheen of an international league that is hosted in England is going to come off. And I imagine that the Premier League is going to want to work, is going to work pretty hard to try and make sure that in any Brexit, in Brexit negotiations, that they are accommodated in some way because it's also not not only is the Premier League successful in its own right but it's part of brand Britain and or brand England certainly mm. in the same way as you know pop music was in the 1960s and 70s mm. the other thing that that free movement of labor has um, has done is made London a very attractive place to set up businesses or to set up offices, certainly, for, for major international businesses. We're four years on from London 2012, and what that bequeathed us was a, a really strong base of companies that work in sport um, that are set up in London. And, you know, how, how does the UK continue to make itself an appealing place for some of the bigger agencies, some of the bigger broadcast companies, or whoever it may be, um, to keep offices here, to keep people working here and, and to keep doing business in this country? That really is a tricky one because I think in that regard the sports industry is really no different to, uh, to any other industry which has to work in internationally. I mean, London um, is in a great, geographically in a great position because of Heathrow Airport, but then so is Frankfurt. Mm. You know, that could also be a European hub. London is strong, for, among other reasons, because of history, because of the fact that Britain was at the forefront, or British companies were at the forefront of the development of sports marketing, quite often in partnership with companies from other parts of the world. You know, but it, 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 it's, no, uh, it's no accident that when uh, Mark McCormack wanted to expand IMG, he set up in, in London, partly because of his obsession with Wimbledon and the British Open Championships, which was so core to his, to his early business. But if you start taking the financial advantages away, in a world where physical proximity is no longer the most important thing, everything else is almost more important, then you know, you're going to have problems. But you know, to put it in perspective, I know we're talking about uh, sport, but this isn't going to be limited to sport. Well, I think you touched on something interesting there, which is that... It's the first time for everything. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the financial sectors, uh, they're, they're dealing with something that is, to a certain level, intangible. And there is, you can, there's only a certain amount of control you can have over where finance flows. And if it flows to London or Frankfurt, you know, to them, there's, there's very, very little difference. Whereas the thing that, that London and that... Britain can do to ensure that sports companies stay here is keep the strong sports brands. And we've talked about Wimbledon already as a really strong one. We've talked about the Premier League as a strong one, uh, you, you know, the, the, the Open. There are others that if we still have world-leading sports brands, sports companies are going to want to be a part of that. Um, obviously, the financial side of things doesn't help, but I think would that, that is one thing that the sports industry does have, that we already have these world-leading brands mm. um, that we need to kind of fight tooth and nail to make sure they're sustained. I mean, we, we I think, need a, a bit of a PR offensive as well in that whatever the motivations there were for people to, to vote as they did and to vote to leave the European Union, I don't think it's been greeted internationally as this great 
open gesture to the wider world. Um, another element of it, though, is, of course, the UK's ability to host major events. We, we've brought it up at the, the top of the show. Um, Euro 2020 is going to be here in, in four years' time. Uh, that will already be a very complicated tournament to run, and I'm sure UEFA would have been uh, pulling their hair out at the thought of having to secure visa-free travel for people in the UK, which would have been the last place that they'd have expected to have to do it. Is there, are, we, are we, at the moment, in danger of being too pessimistic about the UK's capacity to, to, to keep going in, in this, new, uh, this new world that it's created for itself? I think the issues, just sticking to just sticking to sport. I think the issues are are fairly clear. They're to do with the value of of money and the number of pounds. If you're working in a dollar-denominated or a euro-denominated world, the number of pounds you have to generate to pay things like a prize fund. Ultimately, I'm sure they're all dealable with. There may be a degree of inflation, consequently, that uh, that comes into it. But will that mean that? Events abandon uh, abandon Britain. I wouldn't have uh, I, I wouldn't have thought so unless the situation becomes significantly more, uh, more more seriously. The one thing that I think one should have to uh, should look at though is that because the sports industry is so well entrenched, or the sports sector is so well entrenched in the UK, there is a significant skill base of individuals with who are multicultural, if not multilingual, and able to work and, and adapt in an international business because they've been working in a, in a global business, albeit largely in English, all their, uh, their lives. And there are, particularly in emerging sports markets, uh, going back to the, um, the, 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 the European Games last year, which you know, relied almost entirely on UK companies and UK sourced expertise to get it off the ground. So, you know, I, I, I think that, that that knowledge base, that expertise base, means that it's less likely that there will be a, a flight of companies uh, out of the UK as a domicile, if not as a, as a business base. Because remember, you can always keep staff in one place but register your business uh, somewhere else. Okay, I hope that makes everyone feel very slightly better <laughs> until the disasters of the next news cycle. Um, on that chirpy note, thank you very much for joining us, Adam Nelson. Thank you, Owen. Goodbye. And thank you, Kevin. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks very much, everyone.